0: My name is Wamish Hamilton, and this is Tobacco Nation. Tobacco Nation is a four part documentary radio series brought to you by the First Nations Health Authority. In each episode, we'll feature stories about tobacco told by First Nations people living in BC. First Nations peoples in BC are about twice as likely to smoke as the general population. And when you ask them about smoking, you'll hear stories about colonialism, stories about family, and stories about triumphing over adversity. And these are the stories you're going to hear on this show. This is the second episode in the series, Community. Today, we're going to talk with Patricia Vickers, the Director of Mental Wellness at the First Nations Health Authority. But first, we start with a story of tension between First Nations people and the Canadian healthcare system. It's the story of one hospital, one woman, and her fight to put First Nations voices at the center of health care.
1: This was my mum's truck, yeah. which I won't get rid of. That black Grand Prix is my first car ever. And the Firebird is they quit making Pontiacs, so it's amazing. So I can't get rid of them.
0: <laughs> this is Teresa William. In June, our producer Sam Fenn went to Vernon, BC, to meet Teresa. Teresa works as the executive secretary of the Splatsine Indian Band, and she lives in a modest house overlooking an epic mountain range.
2: It's like a Renaissance painting or something.
1: It is. I've looked at it. I mean, that's how I grew up.
0: Standing here, Surrounded by the shells of these old cars, Teresa can't help but think of her mother, Dorothy.
1: She would mow the lawn. She would shovel the driveway. I think it was healing for the fact that you are, you feel accomplished, you're doing something. She had her issues. You know, residential school really affected her. There was a lot of sexual abuse there was a lot of beatings there was a lot of torture in her life so when she raised me she made me she raised me better than she was raised so she was a great mom
0: in 2014 dorothy grows too sick to work in the yard she's 65 years old and she has osteoporosis and kidney failure the doctors tell teresa her mom only has a few more months to live so every day Teresa fights to keep Dorothy alive, and life goes on like this, until one morning when Dorothy anxiously wakes Teresa up. She was having chest pains?
2: Like really bad chest pains.
0: And she told me, I
1: need to
2: go to the hospital. Did you know right away, this is scary?
1: Yes, definitely. Because she never asked me to go to the hospital. She has to be really, really sick or hurting to want to go. I was thinking my mom was dying. I didn't know how long she was going to last.
0: Teresa wants to call an ambulance, but Dorothy says no, so Teresa helps her mom into the car. Teresa, on a good day, has a lead foot, and she floors it to the nearest hospital.
1: Hopefully no RCMP are listening.
0: (laughs) The women zip into Vernon Jubilee Hospital's parking lot and head straight to emergency.
1: I let them know that she was palliative, so they kind of brushed us off to the side, right? I I felt like, what can they do for her? It was disheartening.
0: And then things just get slow. Teresa calls her cousin to come keep her company and they try to kill time.
1: We walked back and forth to the gift shop. I don't, I knew everything that was in that gift shop.
0: (laughs) Teresa buys her mom a puzzle book, but Dorothy doesn't want to look at it. She just sits there propped up in a chair and Teresa can tell she's scared.
1: She wanted to go to sleep. She wanted to be in her bed. So I was paranoid that she was gonna die in the emergency
0: waiting room. Teresa and Dorothy wait and wait and other people's names keep getting called. No one calls Dorothy's name. Hours pass and Teresa starts to feel angry.
1: I went up there, the triage nurse, quite a few times and said, you know, when's my mom getting in? I'm not the quiet type. I want to get angry. I want to start swearing. I want to get really loud. So maybe for once they'd listen. But I was scared to get kicked out because of the security guard and my mom can't talk and understand on her own. And they kept telling us that she was next on the list. I've heard it like four different times that mom was next.
0: Occasionally, someone orders a test or asks Teresa and Dorothy questions. But mostly, it's just waiting.
1: We were in the waiting room for 11 hours.
0: 11 hours late in the evening a doctor finally emerges from some hidden part of the hospital and in front of other people he reads teresa and dorothy the diagnosis
1: mesothelioma nope mesothelioma it's a type of cancer i was shocked i was too tired i didn't ask a lot of questions. I didn't want to scare her. But I was scared. Cause, you know, I figured that I was really trying to keep her alive. And it just felt like another barrier. And I cried when I got home. When I was away from my mom. <laughs>
2: Could you give me a list of things that the hospital could have done that would have made things better on that day?
1: I I know they could have gave her meds. They could have gave her food. They could have gave her services. They could have acknowledged her. They they could have made her feel
0: safe. Mm -hmm. So why did this happen? Why did hospital staff make Teresa and Dorothy sit there for 11 hours? Teresa can't be sure. But one thing did creep into her mind while she sat there.
1: I was watching all of the people go in. Not one First Nations person was in the waiting room for that time, besides us. But a lot of white people filtered through, even for a broken arm. So it was really hard seeing that we were put last.
2: Do you think this is something that would happen if, if you and your mom were white?
1: No, not at all.
3: I was really quite horrified, and I thought, oh, you know, here we go again. There's sort of, the system's really uh, racist. Uh, I'm the chief of the people of Spilatine. My Indian name is Winokjin, and our language means big voice that speaks the truth. My uh,
0: English name is uh, Wayne Christian. Chief Wayne Christian is also Teresa's boss. When he heard Teresa's story, he thought, yeah, that
2: is racist. Why was that a thought that you had when you heard this story?
0: Well,
3: how can I put that? I've grown up in this world, you know, for the last uh, six decades. And my experience through the uh, 50s and 60s was very racist. My son's a diabetic, as an example. And uh, he went into emergency, and the first thing they asked him, if he was an alcoholic, if he was drinking, and he wasn't. And so those kinds of things, it's a normal practice for people to assume as soon as they see our people that were drunks.
0: It's even more normal practice for people to know almost nothing about what the community has been through. Many Splatseen elders were taken away from their families and put into residential school when they were children. Chief Wayne and many others his age were taken away from their families by social workers in the 60s. People call this the 60s scoop. Add to this hellish stories of medical testing on First Nations children, tuberculosis sanatoriums, and the sadly common experience of being profiled as drug seekers at the doctor's office, and you have a community primed to distrust and fear the Canadian healthcare system.
1: As a, you know, First Nations person, in the hospitals, in the medical facilities, we often do feel invisible, looked over. We, We think that they're looking at us as if we want pills. I don't go into the hospital unless I think um, there's something very serious.
2: Why? Why don't you go in unless it's really serious?
1: It's not, I don't feel safe. I, I don't want to be looked down upon. I don't want to be pushed aside. My uncle has kidney failure and he doesn't go to the hospital. He just suffers at home. My mom's ex has heart problems his leg turned black and we don't know what it's from because he won't go to the hospital. Everybody has horror stories of them being in the hospital.
0: This is not just a problem in Splatine. More than one in four Canadian First Nations people say they've experienced racism while trying to access health care. So is it any wonder that there are lots of First Nations smokers? If you don't trust doctors or the health care system, you're probably less likely to seek the help you need to quit. So Teresa and Dorothy are sitting there in the waiting room, and this history of racism is sitting there with them. But the people working at Vernon Jubilee Hospital are totally unaware of that.
4: Hello. Hi, Amber. This
0: is Amber Murray.
4: I work as a registered nurse, uh, patient care coordinator in the emergency room at Vernon Jubilee Hospital.
0: Amber's favorite part of the job is helping people relax. She's got a real knack for it. But she says that in 2014, she didn't know about the kinds of things that the splat people had been through.
4: I just assumed that because I genuinely care about this person, that they're going to feel that. I thought that because I genuinely want to be there for them, that they would know that. Whereas I didn't realize that I actually came in with a whole bunch of stories with me.
0: We tell Amber about how long Teresa and Dorothy waited. At first, she was really surprised. But then she asks, when did this happen? And we say 2014. Oh, she tells us, that makes more sense.
4: In 2014, we were drowning and it was a very dark period in our, in our emergency room.
0: The hospital just recently moved into a new building and they lost a lot of their experienced staff along the way.
4: You are literally leaving every shift doing the bare essentials. I was That connection that I was talking to you about, I couldn't find space for it. I couldn't find a way to make people feel cared about. Our resources weren't, weren't there, our supports weren't there. Every shift, you couldn't get people through the door that needed to. It was um, a very difficult time to feel like you were doing well at your job.
0: If you're a triage nurse, there's one nightmare you're trying to avoid all day long someone's heart-stopping in your waiting room. That's why people don't get seen on a first-come, first-served basis in hospitals. Instead, the triage nurse gives you something called a CTAS number. It's a way to sort people by how urgently they need to see a doctor. CTAS 1 is the most urgent. It means your heart isn't beating. People with deep internal chest pain, like Dorothy, are usually considered CTAS 2s. Amber says CTAS 2s should be seen by a doctor within 15 minutes.
4: When there's CTAS2 waiting in the waiting room, it's it's a high level of anxiety in the department.
0: This sort of thing happens more and more. It becomes relatively normal for a patient like Dorothy to sit there for a long time. And as life goes on like this, from 12 hour shift to 12 hour shift, Amber starts to feel tired. She no longer has the energy to make people feel comfortable. And so Amber quits and gets a new job at a dental clinic. Back at scene, Teresa gets home from the hospital. She's still upset, so she decides to file a formal complaint.
1: I wanted my mom's story to be heard. I want First Nations people to feel safe. I wanted palliative people not to be put on the bottom of the priority list. I wanted to make a change.
0: Soon, Teresa ends up in a conference room. Around the table are a bunch of hospital administrators. This is the kind of meeting that would be scary for anyone. The administrators are dressed professionally and look serious. Teresa is supposed to tell them a story about her dying mom. Add to that, all of the history we were talking about earlier. It takes serious courage for Teresa to just walk in the door. And at first, Teresa says, the administrators only have narrow solutions. You know, they
1: gave me numbers of people to call. They had a plan for my mom. And I said, that's not good enough. I want my mom's experience to help other people that are palliative. I want my mom's experience to help other Natives feel comfortable. So I wasn't settling for just that. They were really trying to run the agenda. When they would start talking, I didn't care. I cut them off and said what I remembered. And I think I made a huge impact. I felt that I was heard.
0: Chief Wayne Christian is also sitting in the room. And he's inspired by what he's seeing. It feels like Teresa is finding her voice.
3: People think that as chiefs and elected people, we're the leaders, and that's not true. Our real leaders are people like Teresa and people that stand up and speak. And our job as leaders is to support them.
5: Uh, My name is Richard Harding and I'm the Health Service Administrator for uh, North Okanagan and specifically the acute hospital, which is Vernon Jubilee.
0: Richard used to be a military medic and nurse. He served all over the world. He gets a job at Vernon Jubilee shortly after Teresa makes her complaint. And he knows the emergency department has been hectic all year. He also knows triage is complicated. Some people in his position would just offer Teresa an excuse and move on.
5: And I remember sort of, you know, thinking quite prolifically on how, you know, we need to do a better job of this. There's no question about that. We're cognizantly aware that, you know, our First Nation uh, population and clients are quite often reluctant to come to the healthcare system and will only come when they're actually in dire need of, of, of services. So Richard
0: decides to seize the opportunity. This is a chance to repair a broken relationship.
6: So my name's Adrian Lewis, and I'm currently the clinical lead of uh, Spots Health Services. I've been a nurse for about 35 years, and I've been at Spotson for about two and a half years.
0: So Richard and Adrian start to hold round tables between the hospital and community. They discuss Teresa's story. This is what Adrian calls a nation-based approach. The change isn't coming from the top. It's coming from the splotsine people, the hospital staff, and the health administrators, all working together. After a few round tables, the group comes up with a plan. They call it a cultural walkthrough. Here's how it works. Adrian and Richard pick a member of each big family in Splatsine, and they invite them to come down to the hospital for a tour. And then they walk around the hospital grounds, making all the invisible, mysterious things more clear.
6: We started with parking. Where to park? And then you're going to see the security person standing right there, and they are actually your ally. You can go and ask them. You can go tell them that this is what you're doing.
5: So, here we are. This is, uh, this is the main entrance as you come through into the emergency department.
6: Splats so. and community Everybody's members that went on that walkthrough through. know all about the triage algorithm now, because we taught them. Uh, Everything about medical jargon to what it means to be triaged, the levels of triage and how they could self-advocate and escalate their concerns up when they went into emergency. This is about um, patient empowerment. This is about self-determining care and being able to ask for the care that they deserve.
0: Teresa is one of the first community members to go on a cultural walkthrough. This also takes some serious courage. She hasn't been back to the hospital since the day in the waiting room. And in fact, during the walkthrough, Teresa actually has a second degree burn on her hand, something that she's been dealing with at home. Because I don't feel safe.
1: And I didn't want to sit there for four hours for them to say, oh, you just want drugs, right? We got to walk through emergency and we got to see the waiting rooms and where they do surgeries. Never seen any of those rooms before. Never thought we could they made me feel comfortable. Like at least I knew what was in the rooms and just to know what's there, what's available, what they do.
2: Were any of the kind of mysteries solved for you about why you waited so long?
1: No. I still don't know why mom waited so long. You know, it's great that what we're trying to do and what's happened with the cultural walkthroughs but no questions were answered for me.
0: There's still a lot of work to do. Not everyone who works at Vernon Jubilee is perfectly culturally safe. And not everyone in Splatseen feels comfortable here. But a lot has changed in just two years. Splatseen community members have learned a lot about how the hospital works it's less intimidating. Many of them now know hospital staff by name, which means they know who they can talk to when they need help. But the hospital has learned a lot too. They've learned about the history of colonialism and racism in healthcare. They've learned that many of their clients don't take it for granted that healthcare workers are on their side. It's up to them to show the community they care All this makes for better doctors, better nurses, and better healthcare.
5: It's now become, you know, beyond just a collegial relationship, you know, we try and collaborate, you know, for things like educational experience and, you know, continuing professional development and mutual support um, to help each other.
4: I don't want to bring
1: you too far up because we've got a bear around here. (laughs) We've got a black bear and a brown bear.
2: Are they hungry? or what? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Very.
0: <laughs> we're back right, in Teresa's yard at the end of the day. Saskatoon berries and stuff Teresa like still thinks early. of her mom when she's out here. Dorothy died of kidney failure before the first cultural walkthrough ever took place. And she never got to see how much good came out of her story. That makes Teresa sad. Because she knows her mom would have been proud. And whenever Teresa feels upset, She works out here in the yard, just like her mom. This has been a story about a woman who refuses to be silenced. And so there is no more fitting place to end than with that woman dressed in work clothes, standing in her yard, holding an oversized chainsaw.
1: This is a 455 Husqvarna. It's too big. It's really heavy. It's a loggers chainsaw.
2: Do you need a loggers chainsaw?
1: No, (laughs) not at all. I don't start it properly, apparently. (laughs) It ran out of
7: gas.
0: (laughs) SplatScene has made great strides. You can do this, too, by making your own commitment to cultural safety and humility. Join hundreds of other British Columbians and participate in the First Nation Health Authority's Cultural Safety and Humility Campaign. You can find more information on the Health Authority's website at fnha.ca. Back in one minute. This program has been brought to you by the First Nations Health Authority. The First Nations Health Authority is encouraging community members to make a difference. This can be done with the First Nations Tax and the First Nations Goods and Services Tax. These are on-reserve taxes for tobacco products. They've been proven to be an effective way to decrease smoking rates. Revenues from these taxes can be used to fund community projects and services. At least 20 First Nations communities in BC are already doing this. To find out more about this opportunity, we recommend speaking with your Community Chief and Council or contact the First Nations Health Authority. Welcome back to Tobacco Nation. I'm Wami Hamilton. Today, we are talking about cultural safety and humility. This is the idea that people can be trained to be aware of implicit biases about First Nations people and address them. In this case... We're talking about removing those biases in healthcare. In order to offer the best care, healthcare professionals need to understand the challenges First Nations people have faced. To find out more about cultural safety, we sent our producer Sam to speak with Patricia Vickers from the First Nations Health Authority.
7: I'm from the village of Kitkatla. I'm from the Eagle Tribe. I have four children and four grandchildren with number five on the way.
2: What is it that you do with the First Nations Health Authority?
7: I'm the director of mental wellness.
0: Patricia is also a psychotherapist. She works with First Nations people who are in crisis, and she puts them in touch with their cultural traditions.
2: I'd love to paint a picture of what your office is like. Can you describe some of the things that are around here?
7: Hanging as you come in the door is a fish mobile that was my father's. He was a fisherman invite people to come in and grab that glass shell and shake it when they've got some good news.
2: <laughs> and then behind you, what, what's on the table behind you?
7: There are medicines, it's an eagle feather, and then uh, medicines that have been given to me, they're lavender, sage, tobacco. Mm-hmm.
2: I've heard people talk about cultural safety, if you were thinking of a healthcare professional, What might it look like, the difference between being culturally safe and and not being culturally safe?
7: Let's say if you're an Indigenous person, then my job, if I'm not from your society, my job is to learn about your healing ways, about what you believe. So do you believe that when a person isn't well, they're out of balance? And do you believe that trauma has caused that imbalance. Because we have a history of cultural oppression, of violence, we've inherited that. So cultural safety is really about confronting the conditioned belief that our values and our principles are ineffective.
2: It's a huge generalization, but a lot of the people that I know think of the hospital as a safe space, a place where you go in crisis for refuge. And and I think they need to understand why some First Nations people may not feel the same way.
7: There's a long history of so many injustices that have happened in relationship with hospitals. Uh, We can begin with sterilization of women. And we were, my sister and I were visiting elders, and this one elderly woman said she remembered she had one child, and that's all she could have because when she came back from the hospital, she could no longer have children. They said it was her appendix and they needed to take them out, but what they did was they sterilized her as well. It's about dehumanization, and sadly, it's hit us from every angle course with residential schools, and then through legislation.
2: And when we think about health today, uh, for there to be this um, legacy of racism, for there to be this trauma there, that has clear stakes, because you have public health problems in every community, but including First Nations communities. Um, And often, the more stigmatized somebody is, the more afraid of seeking help they are, the less care they're gonna receive.
7: Right, and when we look at stigma, really what we're talking about is racism and dehumanization. So this is, this is our history in Canada, and the hospitals are, are one of the many places where this happened, because that's how we were all conditioned we were all conditioned to believe that we had nothing to offer as indigenous canadians
2: you think about addiction a lot do you spend much time thinking about tobacco cigarettes smoking
7: what i've seen and just in my personal experience is within my own family my one of my siblings said after he would smoke weed then the cigarette just help to keep him there. So tobacco was used that way and then when he quit marijuana, he said that the tobacco was actually a lot harder to quit. So and when I went through treatment, those who were beginning to address their childhood abuse and neglect issues had a great deal of anxiety. So they were told to go out and smoke.
2: You know it's interesting because I heard a lot about it being a release. Of anxiety and then I was talking about people's childhood and then I was talking about history and I was talking about colonialism. I'm wondering if you're kind of surprised if by you know asking people questions about smoking you end up in this rabbit hole that leads to these way deeper bigger things.
7: Yeah not at all because habitual behaviors are really about escaping an intolerable reality so I like the way Gabor Mate describes it, and it's about getting that warm hug. (laughs) I really appreciate how he talks about addiction, because the first book I read uh, was in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, and I just thought, ah, finally, somebody's writing about how our past contributes to our habitual behaviors today
2: in your position in the in the work that you do do you do you feel hope
7: definitely definitely so i've just come back from williams lake i went to alkali so i was so happy to go there and to hear their stories about how they're healing it and they're doing it in their traditional way and the sweat and the fast all the things that they're doing within their community It's very inspiring and encouraging. It's not that they're doing something new, it's actually that they're returning to traditional ways. It's new in the way that they are addressing loss within health or mental health in their own community.
0: And that does it for our program today. If you're ready to quit commercial tobacco, but don't know where to start, check out the First Nations Health Authority's Tobacco Timeout Challenge. It's a 24-hour quit challenge taking place on the first Tuesday of every month. Sign up at tobaccotimeout.ca, quit for 24 hours, and be entered for the chance to win a $250 cash prize. You can also call the Quit Now helpline for free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-877-455-2233. That number again, 1-877-455-2233. You can also reach them online at quitnow.ca. They're even on Facebook. If you like today's show, there are several other episodes about smoking. You can listen to all of them for free right now at www. fnha.ca. My name is Wamish Hamilton. Thanks for listening.